that is a small miracle that they are all moving out that quietly. That is pretty, wow. That's right up there with Daniel and the lion's den, closing the mouths of the lion. It's amazing. Okay, it's the first Sunday of the month, and I like to share my own kind of discipleship journey and things that I believe God is putting on my heart. I think discipleship, well, depending on your church background, discipleship can be this really loaded term, and it can sometimes be interpreted as being super Christians or super Jesus keeners, but the Bible uses the word disciple to refer to anybody who's just sincerely trying to follow Jesus, who's trying to study his life, learn his teachings, uh, live under his lordship, and then as they grow and make mistakes and learn from those mistakes, they're just continuing to follow Jesus closer and closer. And so it's not meant to be a descriptor for a next level of Christian. Christian and disciple should be synonymous. But discipleship takes intentionality. Um, Growth as a Christian, maturity as a Christian, takes intentionality. It's not something that just happens. We have to apply ourselves. Um, Jesus talks about this um, in his parable of the two builders. One builds on sand, one builds on solid rock. And the person who builds on solid rock, Jesus says, is those who hear my teachings and do them are like someone who builds their house on solid foundation and not sand. And so what I try and do every month is to kind of break down Jesus is, what Jesus gave us is the great commandment, love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And I take some time to meditate on that and just use those four words, heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, for Jesus, they just meant every single fiber of your being, but I just kind of use them as kind of areas or quadrants for my life so that I'm kind of balancing and growing in an integrative way, heart relationships, soul, prayer life, worship life, interiority, mind, biblical knowledge, growing in in Christian worldview, how to live as a Christian, and then strength, uh, how is God calling me to practically serve and give to the needs of uh, the church, the world, community, friends? And then I usually just take some time to say, God, is there something, is there a theme or an action you want me to take in any of these areas? Sometimes something, an impression comes, sometimes not, but I like to put something down to stretch myself in every area. Because if you're like me, you'll probably become aware over time that there are certain disciplines of the Christian life that are really easy and very intuitive, and you're like, oh, no problem, I love doing this. And there are other disciplines that we almost completely avoid because they're just so challenging for us, either by temperament or experience or what have you. But I like to remind myself that Jesus said he wants us to love God with every part of who we are, not just the dimensions of our life or the areas of our life where it kind of works for us or is easy or there's a lot of momentum so I try and challenge myself along these four ways. So in the area of heart, in terms of my relationships, September usually, I can't believe September is over. That's just a little mind-boggling for me. Um, September is such a month for us as a family of getting structure in place so that the rest of the year stays on the tracks and doesn't derail. But in October, I really want to make sure I'm nurturing good family connection, date times with my wife and my kids to make sure that we're not um, just getting into that mode, which is kind of easy for us to get into, which is here's the week, let's execute the week, let's plan for the next week on Sunday and then execute again. Um, life is about more than just getting through your week, although sometimes it feels like that with a young family. Uh, I linked in Friday's newsletter an article called 10 Things You Should Know About Christian Meditation, and I read that, reread it, and I'm probably going to take a lot of the month to just 
stew over that and reflect. It's written by Sam Storms. And uh, it's just an excellent, uh, more than almost an overview. It's kind of a really condensed, best information on what does it look like to meditate? What is meditation from a Christian perspective? How do we meditate? It's kind of all there. And it's really, really uh, just a lot of fertile ground there. In the area of mind, I'm doing a Grant Horner reading plan, but I'm also adding some journaling. Sometimes I just kind of rush my readings, but I think a journal will help me to kind of pause and make note of certain verses or ideas or impressions that God gives me. I just want to slow down my reading a bit. And then strength. There's been lots of opportunities to serve in ways big and small in my life. And uh, as they've emerged, I've you know, just really had to think carefully about uh, prioritizing sleep, good nutrition, exercise, so that day after day, week after week, I'm, my capacity stays strong to be able to serve people. And so there's not a specific uh, serve project, let's say, that I see uh, playing out this month for me. It's more I see a month that requires a lot of service and a lot of pouring out of my energy in different ways. And so I really want to figure out how to, um, you know, there's that passage in Samuel where it talks about, you know, David strengthened himself in the Lord. And so that's kind of my journey of how do I do that through prayer and scripture study, but also to make sure that um, I'm getting sleep and good nutrition and exercise. There's been a lot of times in my life where I haven't prioritized those things. And then it kind of feels like you're coming unhinged on the inside and your energy is low and you're having all these fluctuations and uh, there, there's probably even times where I've experienced that and thought, oh man, I'm, I'm under like crazy kind of like spiritual warfare. It's just oof, crazy spiritual warfare. And I don't want to dismiss that, but I look back on a lot of those times and it was like, maybe, but maybe you also just weren't sleeping well. And maybe you just weren't eating well and you weren't taking time to just renew via rest and nutrition and exercise. And so sometimes by, no, by neglecting these things, we're actually uh, impeding our ability to love and serve our neighbor well. Okay, we are not going to land in any one um, scripture passage today. We're actually going to be going all over. But we're in a series called Bless. And this has been a really interesting series to prep for. And then to move through, because one of the people that I was really excited about getting their feedback about how this is going was Max Nanachuk. Because the stuff that we're talking about, beginning with prayer, listening with care, eating together, serving in love, and sharing your story, these were all things that he and Colleen excelled at in their lives. And uh, as we have heard and will hear here on Saturday, often when people walked away from a conversation with Max, they just felt inspired and challenged in their own discipleship journey because of the consistent, faithful ways that Max was playing out this series. And he was one of the people that I thought through in terms of landing on the series for the fall and saying, this is what I want to get in our bones. Not just for this year, not as just kind of like a fall campaign, oh, let's get artificially excited, but I want to be a community that grows and learns what it means to bless people. Individually, together, as a church, I recognize that we are blessed to be a blessing and I want to help us get handles of, of, and, and connecting those dots between that intention and everyday life. And then with Max's passing, which has, I think, just hit all of us 
um, in such a profound way. It's, been, it's also felt very awkward to, to go through this series, t- to be honest. Because in my mind's eye, I'm kind of like, I have a vision for the fall, and then we're going to build momentum, and it's going to be awesome. And then I felt myself kind of collapse for a few days on the inside and just thinking about Max and just um, wrestling with God and all that was going on. And then also countering that with this tension of, again, I know Max would want us to press on in mission. And I felt like God saying to me, like, that's one of the ways you can honor his memory is by not just kind of mailing it in for this series, but in honor of him to really preach this because I know this series meant a lot to him. And I know these things were a huge part of his life. And maybe even this morning would have been, for him, kind of the, the mountaintop where all these other things he was excited about, but Max just loved to serve. And Max did serve in love. And so what I thought I'd do is I'd just share 10 lessons, 10 truths about learning to live like Jesus, learning to live like a servant that I learned. And it was really neat. As I was walking through these, I just found myself, again, reflecting on some of my conversations and observations of Max. And many people here, but Max especially. Um, these are lessons that many of you know. He certainly knew. Lessons that we're growing into as a church. Lessons that we need to be reminded of. So I'm just going to go through 10, and then we're going to close. Number one, when it comes to serving in love, we are called to follow the leader. Matthew 28, 20, 28, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus defines his entire mission as one of servant leadership. Not the accumulation of power and glory in order to make his life easier, but the leveraging of that power and glory, the emptying of it for the benefit and blessing of other people. And what that means is, if Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews 12.2 says that he is, that means there is no such thing as a disciple who has sidelined serving in love. A Christian or a disciple who has a posture towards life that, isn't, um, that, that doesn't lean heavily towards how can I serve those around me today, that's incompatible. To be a Christian, to be a disciple, is to be someone who increasingly is excited and energized and motivated and anticipating God opening up ways to serve people around them. Now, I know that this is counter-cultural in a lot of ways. Many voices in our culture that are like, of course, you know, you can help other people for sure, but there's kind of this you-first mentality and you establish yourself first. And then there's just a completely untethered ambition to, no, life is about the accumulation of power and privilege so that you can make your life easier, so, so that you can enjoy life. And if other people get uh, kind of bowled over in the wake of that, I mean, what are you going to do? But when Jesus comes, although he's calling us to do something that is countercultural, he's not calling us to do something that is countercreational. And what I mean by that is the very nature of the universe is... Um, see, when our culture says power is about uh, getting privilege and it's not about serving, it's about being on top and being dominant and being in control, that's actually running against the grain of the universe. 
God designed life to work when we serve one another and when we look for ways and when the strong serve the weak out of love. And so when we're doing these things, even though the culture around us says that's strange, but when we're moving through our daily lives with an attitude and heart to serve other people, that's why people experience an inner buoyancy and they experience more joy and they experience inner, inner cohesion because what they're experiencing is I'm living in the grain of how God created, I'm going with the grain of how God created me to live as an image bearer. So when we're listening to the culture and following the culture's way or certain voices in the culture, and then we're saying, I'm trying to go in this direction, but my life feels smaller and more narrow, and I'm not filled with joy, I'm just filled with increasing resentment or increasing jealousy, and, and my life is beginning to unravel on the inside, we shouldn't be surprised because this is not the way that we were meant to live. We were meant to live in service of each other. Number two, the Bible says that freedom in Christ is for service in love. There's a really interesting passage, passage in Galatians 5 that um, I would say, generally speaking, is half quoted. You get the first line uh, in verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. And it kind of stops there. And then we have all these uh, worship songs and all these emphases and books about freedom in Christ and finding freedom in Christ. And it's not really... Sometimes that word freedom isn't really uh, tethered to a biblical definition. So we insert our own cultural definition, which is freedom means the lack of constraints. You just have the ability to do whatever you want. And so you can misread that verse to think Jesus died so that you could live the life that you want to live. You just, you're free now. You go live the life that you want. But Paul says to the Galatians, Listen, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And the flesh here means, flesh is an important word to make, to make sure you have clear. It doesn't necessarily mean the body. It means the impulse of self-centeredness. So any action which is grounded in um, the self as the center, that's fleshly. Um, so he's saying, don't use your freedom as an opportunity to... Just live your own, live out of your, live for your own selfish impulses, but through love serve one another. Christians are freed from the power of sin and death, so that they can serve other people in love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word: love your neighbors yourself. And in Ephesians two ten, pretty famous verse, Paul says, "We are God's workmanship." Workmanship, and the, and the word there can also mean kind of work of art. We are God's work of art, individually and as the church, created in Christ Jesus for good works, acts of service, big and small, that glorify God and bring good into the world, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this makes sense, right? Like, I mean, if you think about it, um, the Bible says that when, when we turn our lives over to Jesus, when we ask for his forgiveness in that kind of conversion way, like, I'm turning my life over to you, Jesus. I want you to forgive me. I, I, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I give you my allegiance. The Bible says that we are forgiven, but the Bible also says that the Holy Spirit then enters us. It seals us in salvation, but the Holy Spirit begins to work in us. Why? Like, we're saved already. So why, why does the Holy Spirit need to do any work? Well, I hope the answer is... Uh, self-evident in the sense that even though we're saved, 
That's not simply the point of our salvation. We are saved, released from the bondage of spiritual Egypt so that we can learn to walk in a new way of life. And a new way of life where we don't go through life through the lens of what's in it for me, what about me, how do I get on top, I want to be the king, I want to be in charge, I want to be important, but through God is a king, he is important, I want to surrender to him, I want to serve these people. And that takes time as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, but that is what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit is beginning to sanctify us, to change us, to become an instrument that blesses other people. We are not saved from this world as a Christian. We are saved for the world. That's a very important distinction. Number three, serving in love is critical because it incarnates love. Now, I hesitate a little bit to use that word incarnation because I think that should really only ever be used to refer to the incarnation um, of you know, God becoming man, second person of the Trinity, Jesus becoming fully human. But I'm using it to have this idea that you can talk about love, you can um, have an ideology or a worldview that has love at the center, but when you serve someone to them, that translates that idea of love into something real. 1 John 3, it says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And so serving establishes your faith as something real and not just ideological or not just sentimental. It has teeth to it. It makes a real difference in the real world. And serving helps our intentions or our words of love to be received by people in a way that they can actually hear and understand. And we all know that, right? When, you know, talk is cheap. When people experience love through tangible acts of service, and it might be something very small, God is at work. And it makes our love for people and God's love for people real and tangible. Number four, God calls us to serve even in the midst of our own suffering even in the midst of our own hardship. I think of this often when the topic of serving comes up. John 13, pretty famous. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. When he had washed their feet and he had put on his outer garments and resumed his place at the table, everyone's shocked. They're like, why did Jesus stoop to this level? He's washing our feet. Our feet have all kinds of dirt and grime and stuff on them. That's so beneath Jesus for do that to do that. But he does it and then he sits and he says, do you understand what I've done for you? I'm teaching you something. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And so there's a few things there. Number one is that, again, you can't call your... I mean, you can. Um, Biblically, there's a huge tension point between someone who would say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't really operate daily with an attitude to serve and love. Because Jesus says, well, I'm the Lord and the master. So if I do that and you don't, what you're saying is I'm not really your Lord and master or those rules don't apply to me, right? In another place, he says, no one's above their, no one's above their master. But if we are Christians and live our lives predominantly self-centeredly, we're actually saying Jesus isn't our master because our lifestyle, regardless of what we say, regardless of what we sing, regardless of what we pray, if all those things don't make tangible expression to bring glory to God and serve other people, 
Jesus says, uh, you're serving a different master. And likely that master is self, capital S self. But the other thing to note about that foot washing incident is that it happens in the final week of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. This is someone who is not operating out of an overflow of joy. This is someone who's walking into the maw of hell. And he still stops to wash his disciples' feet. And I love this quote by Timothy Keller. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Even if our own troubles are great, you should still serve because Jesus washed his disciples' feet on the way to the cross. And often, in the midst of our own suffering, it's by serving other people from that place of brokenness and incompleteness, and I don't have all of it together, but it's in, from that place, that God brings refreshment and new joy. And that's the fifth point. There is joy in service. And I would argue maybe especially so when we're going through times of suffering or hardship. Proverbs 11.25 says, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and whoever and the one who waters will himself be watered. And that means that when we serve in order to genuinely bless other people, we're not looking for a return on investment. If we serve to bless other people, we find ourselves blessed in the process. That's why, generally speaking, people who move through life with a, well, how are people serving me? What's in it for me? What have people done for me lately? Tend to be um, the most joyless people that you'll run into. And the people who are busying themselves and intentionally trying to serve other people in love are some of the most full um, and fulfilled and life-giving and joyous people to be around. When we serve, we find ourselves connected and connecting, right? There's a big difference between, um, I don't want to say that. No, never mind, I won't say that. I don't think that makes sense. Yeah, there's joy in service. Number six. (laughs) That's right. Number six, serving in love is actually not the same thing as serving. There are a lot of people and a lot of Christians who serve, but they don't serve in love. And that's a, that's a, those are night and day. Because serving in love is very different than serving in order to be served eventually. Maybe not right away, but eventually. Right? I'm serving to communicate that you're now indebted to me, and I'm going to call on that debt at some point. This is not serving with strings attached, or with no strings attached. This is kind of serving with strings attached. We might say to ourselves, oh no, I'm just, I just want to bless that person. But when that person doesn't reciprocate at a later time and we're furious, that's when we recognize that we actually weren't serving that person in love. We were serving on the unconscious condition that when the tables are turned, they're going to do that for us. And that's service, but it's not service and love. Service and love is different than serving begrudgingly. I've known many people in life who give to the church, serve the church, serve the community, and they do it out of a sense of duty. And they're kind of always lamenting the fact that how busy they are and they're serving. And yeah, and um, when you sit down with them, you just realize they're doing it because they feel like they have to do it. They're giving because they feel like they have to do it. They're 
They're, in a sense, loving people because they feel like they have to do it, but it's not coming from a place of genuine love. It's coming from a place of obligation. Serving in love is different than serving on your own terms, which is sort of that I totally will serve as long as um, all these things are in place so that it kind of works for me. So I'll serve uh, in a way that, um, like I I obviously know you serve and you incur some minor inconveniences, but I'm not going to serve in a way that would really impede my lifestyle. Um, I want to help, totally. Um, But I'm, I'm pretty pretty careful to only kind of offer help to this degree because I've got a lot of other stuff going on and, and um, I want to serve in a way that still fits with, again, my agenda. And that's not serving in love because when you serve in love, you have to at least be open to the fact that you're going to be asked to give and serve in a way that is deeply sacrificial and that impedes your ability to do life on your own terms. If you go through your day, beginning with prayer, listening with care, being willing to eat together with people, serve in love, share your story, that commitment, generally speaking, won't play nice with a commitment that says, I'm going to wake up, here's my agenda for today, I'm going to rock my agenda, it's going to be awesome, I want to be happy, and um, I'm going to make sure that people and the, the messiness of people don't really interfere with that. You can't, you can't live out of both spaces. Serving in love requires an acknowledgement that I've got to serve not on my own terms, not necessarily in a way that's going to even be comfortable for me. And serving in love is also different than serving unfaithfully or without excellence. A lot of people serve, but they serve through, oh, this is good enough. This is good enough. You know, I prepare a message, maybe to preach on Sunday. Is it my best? Eh, no, it's good enough. You prepare to lead worship. You know, is it my best? Have I really prepared? Have I practiced? Eh, it's good enough. Getting ready to show up to something and help in some way to serve, uh, maybe to paint something. It's like, ah, oh, this is good enough. Serving in love compels us to do the best that we can because as Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Serving in love is motivated and it's animated by the recognition that yes, I might be serving my family in this capacity or serving my wife in this capacity or serving my neighbor in this capacity, but ultimately, if I'm doing it out of genuine love, it also becomes an act of worship that God receives, that God says, I receive this, as a, not just a blessing to this person, but as a blessing to me because you're doing it out of love for this person, but you're also doing it out of love for me. And you're doing your best. And you're giving your best. Number seven, through our service, other people are one to Christ. Paul says to the Corinthian church, for though I am free from all, meaning I'm not beholden to anybody. No, I fear God, not men. I'm not a people pleaser. I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul said, I want people to understand and experience the love of God. And that means I have to serve people. I have to become a servant. That's how people are going to, that's how, that's why there's a different kind of credibility to the Christian 
message when it's lived out through service and love. People, rightly or wrongly, associate evangelical Christians with people who love in uh, you know, word or have a lot to say about certain things, but don't necessarily back that up Monday through Sunday with an intentional pursuit of loving God and specifically how that plays out into how they love their neighbors. And that creates a resistance. Whenever we find people who are shooting their mouth off about something that they, that they value that's important to them, especially when it comes to things, uh, big things like God and the meaning of life um, and following Jesus, and not, this doesn't have to be perfectly, but if there's not a lot of coherence between that and their everyday life and the way they serve and care for people, that doesn't make the message of Jesus more attractive to people. It makes it more suspicious, right? One of the Ten Commandments is you shall not uh, misuse the name of the Lord your God. And the Hebrew misuse can be also translated as carry. You shall not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we carry God's name in vain when we walk around and say, I'm a Christian, and say that maybe in a celebratory way, but when we don't actually serve other people. But when we marry those two together, both conviction and love for God and tangible service to people around us, that is compelling. And people begin to wonder, what is it about the Christian faith that makes you enter into your everyday life so differently where you're not self-centered? You are the person at work who seems to care the most and is tracking the most with all the other issues that people are going through. And you're offering a listening ear and you're just extending grace and helping people, sometimes in ways that are, seem small to you but are big to them. If you want people in your life to come to know Jesus and to and to turn their lives over to him. It's imperative that we as a community and that you serve them. Serve them in love. Number eight, you're gifted to serve. First Peter 4.10 says, each should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If you want to know how you're gifted to serve, a good place you can go to is spiritualgiftstest.com and that will get you started on that journey of discovering it. And as it relates to your gifting... Where are you gifted to serve? In the church. God has given you all kinds of talents and abilities through which to impact the world and the community, through education, through your own experiences, through your temperament, through things that you're passionate about. But spiritual gifts are given to Christians in order to serve other Christians in the local gathered body that they're a part of. And so again, I would argue... Some would push back on this, but I would argue, I think Scripture makes it clear that a Christian who isn't becoming aware of their spiritual gift in order to then go to their church's leadership and say, how can I use this gift to serve other people in this community? That is a misunderstanding of what their spiritual gift is for. Spiritual gifts are to strengthen the church so that we are learning to love each other well, and out of that momentum, we are then moving into the world and spreading that love. But our core is strong. Our family unit here is strong. And the strength of the family unit in Christ is only as strong as all the members are saying, this is my gift, 
how can I use it to serve you? How can I use it to serve this church? Number nine, serving in love frees you from the prison of consumerism. Serving in love frees you from the prison of consumerism. Consumerism is a little bit of the air we breathe, the water we swim in that we're not always aware of. There's a bunch of factors that have conspired to kind of um, bring us to where we are as a culture. But when you become aware of it, listen to the messages of, of commercials, listen, listen to the major voices in our culture, um, be discerning in the articles that you read that look at uh, how to evaluate what's good in life, what, what the good life is, how do we achieve what's good. One of the central plot lines of all of those narratives is a good life, a rich life, and a full life comes from consuming. Consuming more stuff, consuming more experiences, in some cases consuming more people, consuming more bodies, consuming more pleasures. And again, I want to make it clear that God has given us all of creation to enjoy, but through the lens of consumerism, and it's very subtle, but we need to become aware of it, these good things get distorted into idols that we chase after and wonder why we're not fulfilled. Because fulfillment doesn't come from consuming things, generally speaking, in life. Fulfillment comes from establishing things and investing in other people and serving and loving and when we serve in love and you begin to experience that momentum of, I've never served more, I've never sacrificed more, I've never given more money away, I've never put my own agenda more at risk in the service of loving other people, but my life has never been more exciting. My life has never been more meaningful. I kind of assumed this, this is backwards, that, that my life would feel smaller and, 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 and more compressed, but it actually felt smaller and more compressed and more of a dead end when I was just trying to live by taking and taking and taking and consuming and taking in. And now that I'm following Jesus' way, I feel like I'm coming alive. But it seems counterintuitive. The reason why it seems counterintuitive is our culture in so many ways says, no, you, um, you are filled up by getting, by taking in more. And instead the Bible says, no, the way that you keep getting filled up by blessing is God blesses you to be a blessing to other people. And then God fills you up more and you become a blessing to other people. And your capacity to be a greater blessing to people increases. So God has to fill you with more good things. And then you keep giving it out. And that's fulfilling and that's exciting. Lastly, greatness in the eyes of Jesus is achieved through humble, loving service to others. Jesus said, if you want to be great, whoever wants to be great, these guys are arguing, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Like, there's 12 of us, but, like, someone's got to be, like, number one. It can't just be, like, Jesus and 12. Who's the greatest? He says, you want to be great, you got to be a servant. And you got to serve in love, not just serve begrudgingly or do it uh, to get Jesus' bonus points only when he's looking or to kind of just do it, like, this is good enough. But you have to serve God by serving other people in love. Ambition towards the wrong end is a terrible vice. But towards the right end, it can be re redeemed into a really world-changing virtue. The key is what 
what our ambition is aimed at. Everyone should have a desire to be seen as great in the eyes of Jesus. And what I love about how Jesus sets up his kingdom is he says, greatness is my, in my kingdom is open to anybody. It's open to anybody. You don't have to be the best of the best at something. You don't have to be the most beautiful. You don't have to be the most worldly, in a worldly understanding, powerful. You don't have to be the richest. You don't even have to have it all together. You can have a terrible history. Because greatness in my kingdom will primarily be defined as people who humbly serve those around them. And while the world looks at the people who stand out and the charismatic people under the lights, I'm going to look for the people preparing the coffee in love. I'm going to look for the people cleaning up this mess in love. I'm going to look for the person helping their classmate with their homework in love, even though that might cost them um, a bit of a grade mark because they're taking time away from themselves. I'm going to look for the people who had a lot to accomplish today, but they're hitting the pause button because they have a coworker or a friend whose life is falling apart and they need a listening, unhurried presence. Jesus says, that is, you, want to have, you want to be great in my kingdom and you should want to be great in Jesus' kingdom. That's what you chase after. You chase after serving one another. Greatness in the kingdom of God is open to anybody because it's all about loving service to other people. Justin read this as the call to worship. I'm going to read it again to close. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, Nelson Covenant Church, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself he became, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our servant king has been exalted Lord over all, and we glorify him most powerfully when we serve others in love. Let's pray. God, teach us to serve and to serve in love and to serve out of a recognition of your love for us. I want the culture of our church to continue to grow and to strengthen in this area. I see lots of ways that we are strong in loving each other and loving our neighbors in this community and in the far ends of the earth. But God, I want it to increase, continue to challenge us and grow us up out of consumeristic, individualistic, hedonistic, self-centered areas. Holy Spirit, help us to release those places to you. We're holding on to them because we think this is where there is life but lead us into the life that is truly life, that is about serving others and looking for ways to just pour out your love, even if it's through something as simple as a listening ear. Put a fire in our hearts to be a people who serve and help us to be a church that is strengthened and strong as we use our gifts to build up one another. In Jesus' name, amen.